Welcome back to another episode of Tread Lightly Running. We are so excited to be joining you on your run or wherever you are listening to us. And we have a fun episode today, one that several people have asked about, and it's based on one particular listener question, how not to slow down during your marathon. I'm Laura of Laura Norris Running. And I'm Coach Amanda of Run to the Finish. And man, isn't this the question of the ages? How not to slow down during a marathon? Oh, that's a big one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there, as we'll get into, there can be so many things that slow people down from things inside their control to sometimes just a poor roll of the dice outside your control, like GI upset or really unpleasant weather or something. And we'll address all of that. So today's episode came from a listener question. Alexandra wrote in, I recently ran my second marathon, which all things considered went really well. I hit my goal of hitting my BQ time and managed a huge PR. Huge PR. Despite being an overall success, the last six miles of the race felt way, way harder than I think they should have been. My pace dropped off by about 30 seconds or so, and I couldn't take down any of my nutrition. I know, as most things, this is probably due to a combination of factors and that the last six miles are always going to be hard, but I wanted to see if you had any recommendation on things to implement for my next training cycle that might help. So this is a great example of what we call hitting the wall or bonking, although my friends in Europe have told me bonking has a different meaning. But that is what we say here. (laughs) So um, technically, hitting the wall does tend to happen around mile 20. And it is generally thought to be a combination of glycogen depletion from just not having enough calories or working beyond our current capabilities. Yes. Yeah. And to kind of give an idea before we get into this, why glycogen depletion can cause you to slow down. When you run a marathon, especially if you're trying to PR, you're running it at a decent intensity. Like you're not just out there like you do on your normal easy runs. You're trying to hit a certain pace. That pace takes a little bit more effort. Well, once your glycogen begins to run low, your body puts in the protective mechanism. It doesn't want you to fully deplete your glycogen because like that could cause pretty significant lasting damage. So your body switches over to using mostly fat oxidation. But the cost of fat oxidation is that you have to be at a lower intensity to use mostly fat to produce energy, hence the slowing down. You're slowing down to a point of fat oxidation being dominant. There's also muscle fatigue and other stuff going along, but that's metabolically why glycogen depletion is causing you to hit the wall and becoming more fat adapted isn't going to solve that problem. Oh, man, I love that statement. (laughs) So for everyone who's like, I'm doing this to become fat adapted, it's a reminder that on race day, you are racing in a different zone and your body needs carbohydrates. (laughs) So I found this really cool study where they actually pulled the data of about 4 million race results. And I thought some of this was just kind of interesting. They found that male runners were more likely to slow down than female runners. So about 28% of male runners hit the wall compared to 17% of female runners. And of course, this study is just looking at the data. So there's no like, why was that? The assumption is maybe that 
the male runners were going out with a more competitive mindset. And so they went out too hard. Um, the other thing they found, which was kind of interesting, is that runners aged 40 to 50 were least likely to hit the wall. And I feel like that makes so much sense to me now that I'm in my 40s. I just feel like I am a smarter racer than when I was in my 20s. And I would set that initial race goal and then be like, mm, I can do better than that. <laughs> but I couldn't because I burned myself out. <laughs> Yes. And in this study, when runners do hit the wall, men tend to slow down more than women. Typically, they slow down by 40%. Women slow down by 37%. This is where the fact that female runners tend to have a little bit better fat oxidation than male runners is probably coming into play. Women can often hold higher relative paces to their marathon pace at fat oxidation rates than men can. It's just kind of physiology, although Certain training approaches can alter that for men. Um, and then hitting the wall was also most frequent in three years immediately before or immediately after setting a new marathon PR. In this study, they found that 36% of all runners who hit the wall uh, did so three years before a recent PR compared to 23% in earlier years. And sometimes I think that's where setting a goal and being so focused on that goal time can backfire, especially if you don't make adjustments for the exact day you're having. A hundred percent. And maybe also kind of a reminder that like, it's not that big of a deal if you have a race where you hit the wall. Maybe you learn something really important from that race and it's what's going to propel you forward to getting that PR. So I think that's kind of a maybe a nice little win there as well. Oh, I completely agree. Like I've seen so many athletes in coaching have a race where they hit the wall be an impetus to be very conservative about even pacing their next marathon. It's almost sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Yes, that would be me. I've learned the hard way repeatedly. <laughs> so kind of looking at this listener question as a case study first, and then we'll broaden out. Um, what I found really interesting was she mentioned, um, I forget if it was what we read or in what the fuller thing she sent, that she was doing a lot of 45-minute easy runs. And she was wondering if those should be longer, if she should do a lot of 60-minute training runs. Um to help her not hit the wall. So what would you say in, in response to that? The data actually from one of these studies um, did actually kind of show that having the appropriate level of training was one of the major keys to not hitting the wall. And I think we can underestimate the value of our weekday runs when we focus so much on the weekend long run. But all of that time on your feet is consistently adding up, consistently building endurance, consistently creating mitochondria, just teaching your body how to handle all of this. So to me, it would probably be a big win to be able to move from that 45 minutes to 60 minutes. I agree for all the reasons you said. And I think also sometimes just mentally pushing yourself a little bit further in training can help with the cognitive aspect of fatigue resistance because it it does take work to go from a 45-minute run to a 60-minute run. And there's going to be times you're having to talk yourself into you know those extra 15 minutes. And that can really help both physically and mentally develop fatigue resistance that heavily impacts how the final 10K of a marathon goes. 
Absolutely. And then one of the other things she mentioned in there was having trouble with taking down nutrition later in the race. And that is a really common issue. And in talking with um, Serena Marie, a registered dietitian, one of the things that she pointed out is that often hydration is the actual issue that's creating the problem with taking in fuel. So when you're not taking in enough fluids, with those gels, especially when those gels are requiring fluid, it's just kind of backfiring. So now you don't want the fuel or the fluid and it's making everything worse. So really step one to me is staying on top of your hydration from beginning to end. Um, because I do think that's a piece, again, we talk about the long run, we talk about our gels, um, but it's all those little things too that really add up. So if you're carrying your own hydration, it's really easy to just take a sip at every mile If you're not carrying your own hydration, then making sure you grab something at each aid station. And maybe all you do is take a sip sometimes. Other times, maybe you drink a little bit more. But just kind of getting in that habit of taking it consistently and practicing, again, that on long runs too, I think is could be a really big piece of just being able to take in more of your nutrition. Yes. I've become a huge fan of carrying your own hydration on race day. I mean, we see people like dietitian Megan Featherstone carrying her own bottle to do a 249 marathon. It clearly is worth the extra tiny bit of extra weight for how much staying hydrated benefits you. And sometimes a marathon, it's just, it's hard to make all those hydration stops. So why not give yourself the benefit of having your own fluids, having your own sport drink to make sure you're getting enough sodium because that plays a role in hydration rather than strictly relying on what the course provides, how often the aid stations are, how crowded they may be, how diluted their sport drink may be. Absolutely. I agree. And then I know an area that for me personally is one that I will be working on forever and ever, and that's really and truly hitting our fueling goals. Yes. Yeah. So our fueling goals are quite high during a marathon. You'll probably see the recommendations are usually 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. I will say if that seems like a lot, try to get 50 because even that can help. And I've seen this work for so many athletes. So it's what the science says, but I have seen again and again in practice that once I get athletes to hit 60 grams of carbs, up to 90, which is roughly a gel every 20 to 30 minutes, or some of them think about it as a gel every 5K. Um, They have awesome races. Like I had one athlete where this was mostly what we focused on in the marathon cycle, and it was the most even splits he'd ever run in a marathon. And that was the biggest change we made. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the other things to consider is just have you planned appropriately for the specific race course that you're on? So she didn't tell us a lot about the course, but if it is a course that happens to have more hills later, um, then we have to look a little differently at our energy usage and our pacing strategy, things like that. Or like you said, what is the weather doing that day? Is it getting progressively warmer and warmer while you're out there? that is going to impact your pace because your heart rate is going to be increasing so much more than it would if it stayed cool. So I think some of it then comes down to kind of having that actual race day strategy, which we'll talk a little bit more about. 
Yes. And building off of that and kind of broadening out beyond this specific case study, I think the race day strategy begins by really appropriately setting a race day goal that is appropriate for your fitness and is appropriate for the course that you're going on. Because as we all know, it's different, say, if you're running Chicago Marathon versus New York City Marathon in terms of the paces you can maintain. So I know you found a really interesting study about setting race day goals and how it impacts marathon performance. Do you want to dive into that? I did. And I was excited because they even used the words statistically significant, which I know you have taught us all (laughs) means that the study is worth looking at. Um, So in this case, it was the 2018 Dublin Marathon. They looked at all the race results and a number of other things going on there. They had people doing a lot of self-reporting. So what they found was that those who had the least chance basically of hitting the wall, one had like consistent training that was appropriate for the goal that they were setting. And that was the second big piece. They set an appropriate race day goal. So they followed the plan to the goal that they had set. So instead of being someone who maybe had previously run a four hour marathon and setting a 330 marathon goal, they set a 355 marathon goal and then did training that lined up with someone running a 355 marathon. So I thought that was just really interesting that part of the reason maybe we're hitting the wall is that we're just trying to make a leap that's a little bit too big for what our fitness is actually showing us. Yeah. And that's why often when I set marathon goals with my athletes, like we'll have a ballpark at the start, but then when we get closer to the race, we objectively look at training, kind of maybe throw out like their worst workout if something really weird happened there. But look, where are you averaging your paces on your marathon pace workouts? Because that's going to be our best predictor right now of where your marathon fitness is. And you don't want to be like, you know, having your workouts showing all and that you're in 335 shape and you're like, but I really want that Boston qualifier. So I'm just going to aim for the, you know, 330 right now. Like even those small amounts can make the race pace a little too aggressive for your fitness. And I think that happens so easily. We kind of get into taper and we've got all this energy and then we've got the energy of the start line and we sort of convince ourselves that maybe we can run faster than we've actually trained for. I think that is a super, super common thing to have happen and not that it never works out, but my goal is for you to have a really good day. Um, And so if you can find a way to sort of keep yourself focused on this was the plan. And unless I get to 20 miles, just feeling like a rock star, I'm going to follow the plan. And that's the really, really important point you hit on that so many runners have a problem with is following the plan because marathon pace is going to feel like an aerobic cakewalk at the start of a marathon. I think one of my athletes did super well because he went into his and he was like, I'm going to run bored for the first 13 miles. My goal is to be almost so comfortable I'm bored. And it resulted in even splits because you feel so good that you're like, it's hard to start out at marathon pace on race day. You feel good. Other people around you are probably running faster because everyone takes off like a bat out of hell. But it, that discipline to go 
almost slow, what feels slow at the start really pays off because it's not just having the goal, it's executing the strategy. A hundred percent. And so then looking at that training component and thinking about it specifically in terms of not just being able to cover 26.2 miles, but being able to cover them and trying to kind of hold that even pace like we've talked about. I think one, we've already mentioned, maybe it's a little bit more volume. So going from 45 minutes to 60 minutes is not a massive shift, but it is a little bit more volume. So looking at your total volume and seeing, do you maybe need a little bit of an increase there? And then I do think it also comes into types of workouts that you're doing. And so throwing in some of even that short, hard, fast paced workouts, I think can be really great because it forces us to mentally go to a different place to be like, I can hold on, I can hang through this. And that's like those final miles when everything hurts because you've been pushing. It gives you that chance to kind of dip into that. And that mental side is really, really huge. So I know we talked about this in a previous episode, but I've become a really big fan of doing like some fast finish workouts on long runs. So maybe like your last couple miles are actually down to like half marathon pace. And so that's harder than what you're going to ask yourself to do in the marathon. But it really kind of forces you on tired legs to figure out like, how do I find this? And how do I keep myself going and practice that like visualization even? I think those are so helpful. And then big marathon pace workouts can be really valuable also because I think when you do like a long marathon pace tempo, which I know I just talked about like a couple episodes ago, it teaches you how to hold that pace when you're fresh. And then it teaches you how to keep holding it as you tire out. And both of those are valuable skills in the marathon is being a metronome and keeping on the pace when you feel good, but then also having the fatigue resistance. And like Amanda said, the mental grit to keep at it when you're really, really tired. And one of the things that elite runners do that I don't think us everyday runners take advantage of enough is visualization. So whether that's while you're running or whether it's just doing a visualization while you sit and kind of, you know, see yourself going through the race day, There are some really, really cool studies showing how powerful that is. Basically, you're telling your mind, like, this is what I expect to happen. This is what's going to happen. And you're getting into your subconscious. And it is super, super powerful. I think one of the keys to visualization is just remembering that you don't visualize 26.2 perfect miles because that almost never happens. So you've got to visualize, okay, what happens at mile 21 when my energy dips a little and I'm questioning my entire life? Oh, okay. I think I need a gel and I do this. And then I start running through my checklist of my form and I wave to the crowd and okay, look at that. I pulled myself out of it. So I think that's just a little piece that like, when you've got a big goal next time, like consider throwing that in too. I think that's great advice because there are some runners who will do everything we're talking about with pacing and training and nutrition and still slow down in the end because they kind of just mentally pull off the gas as soon as things start to hurt. That would be me again, folks. <laughs> I really need a redemption marathon to put everything into play. Um, so we'll see one of these years. <laughs> 
one of these years. I feel that. Um, so then the other thing um, with kind of the broad look is nutrition. And we talked about your race day fueling, but that's only part of the picture. And it's kind of, you know, the, the cherry on top of the cake or something that's still vital, but only part of the picture. So in your marathon training, are you paying attention to recovery nutrition? When you come in from those big long runs, are you getting your protein and carbs so that your muscles can restock glycogen and your uh, like all the muscle damage can start repairing so that you adapt to your training? Are you practicing your fueling in your training? We don't want to just go into race day and be like, okay, today I'm taking 60 grams of carbs per hour, even though I never have before, because you'll probably end up unable to take down your nutrition due to nausea or GI issues. Are you carb loading? Carb loading is essentially giving yourself like a 4% performance boost. And 4% is a lot when you're trying not to slow down in the race. It's thinking about all those parts of the pitcher, not just race day fueling. Yeah, 100%. I think we often forget that maybe during training, you're hitting your workouts, but then you're under fueling. And so you're just not always kind of taking it into account because you're like, ah, I'm hitting my speed workouts. I'm hitting my speed. It's fine. But day after day, week after week, that is taking a toll on your body and very often could be creating like some muscle breakdown and some strength issues. So then when it comes to race day, where your body really needs to be in top form and ready to lay it all on the line, months and months and months of that little thing building up might be the thing that's then finally holding you back because your body really isn't in its top form. Yeah. I mean, that that's super, super important. And we talked a lot about like setting realistic pace and stuff, but the one thing that I think some runners get into issue on are pacing over hills in a marathon. Even if you practice on hilly courses in that, sometimes the hills on a race day are are not exactly how the elevation chart might make them look. So usually what I recommend to people is we're not trying to like hit a certain pace on those hills. If I gave you a certain pace, it might not be appropriate, even if it's slowing down. But often what I tell people is when you get to the base of the hill, pull back then rather than getting up the hill and all of a sudden having all the effort catch up with you, you're out of breath and you have to slow down on the downhill when ideally the downhill is when we want to be at marathon pace or a little quicker. What recommendations do you make to athletes dealing with hills in a marathon and not fatiguing on them? Yeah. So I try to think of hills as maintaining the effort that you were running rather than maintaining the pace. So whatever, say you've been running a nine minute pace and that felt like a nice little level six early in the race and you get to some hills. I want you to maintain that feeling of a level six or a rating of perceived exertion six. So try and carry that up the hill. And then like you said, you're probably going to speed up going down. But again, I want it to feel like a six. I don't want you to be sprinting down the hill trying to take advantage of it. And that will usually kind of even itself out then. And then I also know you haven't overcooked yourself or like overdone it on the hills because you were so concerned about the pace right there. Um, I find that that can work really well. That's really, really helpful. I feel like that's something I need to remember is I might slow down too much on hills sometimes in a race, um, but I guess it's better to do that. 
Are there any final thoughts you would leave to our listeners on how to avoid hitting the wall during their next marathon? So I think there are a couple other things that we could probably touch on. One is doing a tune-up race. So doing a half marathon tune-up race, and you could do this kind of depends on your schedule, but maybe four weeks out from the marathon um, and actually going in and trying to race it decently hard. So that gives you a chance of kind of having that mental push through, finding that fatigue, seeing how you get yourself through those final miles, practicing all your fueling. And obviously your half marathon pace is going to be faster than your planned marathon pace. So I think there's like a big mental win out of that too, because then suddenly marathon pace feels a little easier because it is not your half marathon pace. Um, And so you're like, man, if I can hold that for the half and I can hit my nutrition and I made myself like really push through the end, okay, I've got this for race day. So I think that's kind of one thing in terms of racing. The other one would be stop racing so much. (laughs) Yes, yeah. If you keep hitting the wall in the marathon, maybe don't do five marathons per year. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we're seeing more and more and more of this because people are wanting to run all of the majors and suddenly they're in, they got in this lottery and that lottery and they're running back-to-back races or more races in a given year than they planned. And so that takes a toll on your body, whether you want to admit it or not. Um, And so if you find that you've had multiple marathons in a row where you've hit that wall and you feel like you're doing these other things, it might just be kind of a sign that, hey, I need some downtime and then I need a complete training cycle. So I see a lot of really shortened training cycles because we're going through recovery and then quickly jumping into another race. So It might just be kind of a, you know, let's look at the overall race calendar and see what maybe I need to pull back so that I can really go for my true goal, which is this time versus just running all the marathons. That's very sage advice and very appropriate for a lot of people because it seems so trendy now on social media. The one thing I would add, and you you actually said this earlier, so I it's something I tell my athletes and I want to reiterate here is if you start to fatigue, throw an extra gel at it. So we talked about having your nutrition plan, but what I always tell my athletes is to bring about one to two more gels than they think they need or to know that they can take what's provided on course, but usually you don't have to rely on that. Just take one to two extra gels. And if you start to feel fatigued, throw some carbohydrates at it. You actually have receptors in your mouth that will start to send signals to your brain pretty quickly. And even before the carb hits your bloodstream, your brain is going to be like, oh, that's the energy I needed. It lets you have a little bit of extra mental and physical push. And don't change your fueling plan. Like Don't start altering later down the line because you took that one extra truly make that an extra gel and then take your next one right on schedule. Ooh, I think that's really good advice, especially if you're dealing with a hilly race. Like I like taking something shortly before you start getting to some of those big hills, because it is that same, like you said, it's just this little trigger to your brain that like, Hey, we've got enough energy for this. This is no big deal. So I love that. That's a great, that's a great tip. And yours is a really good tip about taking it before the hill. Um, So I really hope this has been helpful to everyone listening. If you have any further questions on this or there's anything else you want to hear us discuss, please reach out at Tread Lightly Running on Instagram. 
And absolutely, we appreciate all of the reviews that you have left us. It is truly helping other runners to find the podcast. So if you haven't left one, please take five seconds to do so. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast. And thanks so much for listening.